We're in week three of a series on hospitality. This is where we've been. In the first week, we introduced the subject, and I gave you some kind of just personal observations about hospitality and why it's so important and so central to Christians and why it seems like Americans have such a lack of hospitality in general and Christians really a misunderstanding of how central it is to the Christian life and frankly if I could just say it outright Christians just really do not do hospitality very well if at all we're just not good at it and we've been kind of struggling with that a little bit as a group last week we looked at examples of hospitality in the scriptures and I'm just going to summarize very briefly a couple of points from that and tonight we're going to be talking about Christ as the stranger and seeing Christ as the guest so we're kind of moving through a couple of themes and finally we're gonna end this series with some practical issues about hospitality so I'm gonna be encouraging you to start thinking of things that as I've been talking in the back of your mind you're saying you know that sounds good but I don't know how that would work in practice I don't know how that would work in our time I want you to keep thinking about that because I'm gonna invite you to actually write down some of those questions uh, so we can address some of the practical issues uh, at the very end okay if you remember from last week just to kind of recap a little bit we were actually looking at the Greek word that we get hospitality in our scriptures the translation has these two parts if you remember that if you put them together this philio and this xenia that literally xenia if you put them together it just means the love of strangers or love to the stranger and I'm gonna be focusing more on that even tonight I have said that we really don't understand hospitality even among friends uh, it's gonna be very hard to extend it to strangers but that is ultimately where we have to get to and we're starting to go there tonight so just keep in mind that even when we talk about hospitality just it's still very tempting for us to be thinking about entertainment last week I explained the basis of ancient hospitality that in a land where there was no place that you could publicly go for food or for shelter that any time you traveled you were at the mercy of people to put you up people that you didn't know at the same time in a land where there was no way to communicate anything people were at the mercy of strangers who came to visit to provide them with news of the outside world and this relationship developed over many 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 centuries and even the millennia where there was an understood relationship I said that one week I said that you know only the depraved would not follow their hospitality obligations and do so not only willingly but with pleasure that was the mark of civilization so you see this kind of relationship the host is obligated to provide food shelter and protection the guest came to provide stories and news of the outside world and tonight I'm tweaking that just a little bit I'm really focusing on good news because we're really focusing on how the gospel begins to spread Morgan with the idea of like wanting news from the outside or other things like that, that it would provide a, a secondary motive for hospitality. Like it may even add to why it's so hard now because you know we have the internet, we have this, we have no like why would we take somebody in to find out some news? Like clearly we're not going to do that. So do you think that maybe makes it in or um, yeah, you could just speak to that and why that would cause people to want to open their homes maybe? both of them actually have changed so like in, if there's no public place for lodging or food today there is like if we travel from one city to another and I'm not just talking about within let's say the basin that we're here but let's say we go to another state 
all of us would probably be able to think of a state we don't know anybody in. But we expect to be able to find a hotel or a motel. We expect to at least be able to pull over to find food at any one of a number of restaurants. And there's a measure of control that's in our own hands that says that I can do that, right? So I'm in control and I can venture to places I've never been and I'm okay because I don't have to worry about providing for myself. Conversely, just like you said, I can look up my own news sources and figure out what's going on in the world so I don't really need people to come and deliver information to me. You know, you're talking about an internet world that is only about 15, 20 years old. I mean, I know most of us grew up in it, but I actually remember when visitors came to our house and brought letters physically. Because travelers would, you know, say to all of their friends around them, I'm going to this country or this state and I'm going there. And I know you could think, well, why can't you just put a stamp on it and mail it? But there was that tradition somehow had still stuck that, you know, when you were going to visit somebody, you asked everybody, you know, hey, I'm going to visit so-and-so. Does anybody have something they want to send along even? And you had to actually think to keep room in your suitcase for what other people might come and bring to you. And it was the same. So, I mean, this is a little bit foreign to us to have somebody intrude on our luggage space. We're very, you know, we're very kind of private about, hey, I've actually been in places where people have come to me and said, uh, would you please deliver these things when you get back to the United States to some of our friends? And I could have said, you know, there's UPS and FedEx. What are you doing? Like, why are you sending that with me? But it was part of that idea of it still somehow lingers to this day. But the more and more these are available, the more we lose the original beauty of this relationship. And I want to say to you that I don't think that that means the relationship is no longer needed. It just means that we're more and more tempted to do without it. Jeremy? I was just going to say, um, in 2001 and 2002 and 03, I traveled to Armenia each summer. And each summer, um, especially the second and third summer, I took stuff with me from uh, the guy I was visiting. His name was Levon. I took stuff from his grandfather, who lived here in you know, Glendale. And so I would go over to his house, and he would greet me. And I, I mean, I couldn't get out of there in under an hour and a half, you know because there was food provided and conversation that was like, here, take this stuff for Levon and my granddaughters, you know? And so I would, you know, and, and this, this was not that long ago, so it, it made me think of like, that's another culture, especially the Armenian culture, where that still happens. And, you know, send my love, send my greetings, you know, give them all a holy kiss when you get there, which, in fact, Levon called me from Armenia, you know, can you take this stuff from my father, you know, when you come with me, or when you come? Yeah, and this is a tradition, by the way, that extends back thousands of years, right? It's just only recently, and again, it's a mark of how different our American culture is, where we would be very kind of standoffish on like, hey, you know, figure out another way to get the stuff to your dad. Like, what am I, a carrier? And actually, that kind of is exactly what we are. <laughs> For thousands of years, travelers were exactly that. They were mail carriers, and they were like delivery people. Uh, first, because that was the only way to do it, but even later, because it was part of the obligation of hospitality. Monique? I think it's kind of like every culture except American culture, because like <laughs> Mexican culture, like last summer I went to Mexico and I'm expected to bring things to my 100 cousins, aunts and uncles, but not just that, like extended, like there are people obviously that are cousins that marry other family that are not directly my aunt. It's like, hey, if you're in this area, drop by this person's house and give her this and like bring back that and it's just kind of expected still. But I was just going to say, too, that there's something to be said for, like, learning about culture and experiencing things 
through the eyes of people who are from an area, and so that's really valuable. So I think it's more about isolation or privacy, because anytime I've traveled and I've stayed with someone that lives in that place or knows that place, it's a completely different experience, and it's very valuable to see through their eyes for local people, even in the States like staying in someone's home and seeing like the best cheap like places to eat or like meeting their friends and people and like networks that way. Like there's a lot of value in that still. Part of the cost of traveling to kind of pick up on the comments that I'm hearing is the gifts that you have to take to the people that you're going to be encountering. And I don't mean the people you're going to be staying with. That's at a minimum. But like for example, take like Lena's mom who travels from Russia to come and stay with us. When she comes, she brings one suitcase full of her clothes and one suitcase full of gifts. The gifts are for, of course, me and Lena and Christine, but they're also for my parents, my sisters, who she barely knows, and their husbands and their kids and all of the people she could think of because the worst thing you could imagine is to go to any of these people's homes while you're visiting and not have something to give to them. Think about that from the American perspective. We would think, that's crazy. We barely think of the plane tickets going to cost to get there and maybe something that we might give the people that are going to put us up. But to think that I'm going to show up in some other city, even here in this country, and also bring things to them, like that's, we're just not that generous. We're not that hospitable. That would blow our minds. One more, just while we're throwing out ideas that blow our minds in hospitality. We've talked about reciprocity a number of times, like the idea that Jesus wants us to go beyond reciprocity, but we as Americans don't really even comprehend reciprocity. And I was trying to explain reciprocity to somebody this weekend in hospitality, and it occurred to me that I'd never actually brought up this example here. Here's an example of hospitality. My parents were invited to probably hundreds of weddings in the last 20 years. And they would go to different weddings, and they would always take a sum of money to give to the bride and groom. And these weddings that they were invited to, they probably didn't even know the bride and groom. They just knew the parents. But they were invited to certain weddings. And they would keep track of what they were doing. They kind of mentally keep track. My mom actually has a little notebook. <laughs> She's an accountant. That's just her style. When Lena and I got married, there were only so many people we could fit into the different receptions we had. But one of the things we learned as we were opening our wedding gifts is we got wedding gifts from all over the world, from people that we didn't know who had not been invited to our wedding who just sent checks in the mail. So we just started opening one check after another, after another, after another, and there was my mom with a little notebook like checking them off, you know? <laughs> because what that was was a reciprocity. Now you might think it just seems like some cold calculated payback, but what that was was every single person who had ever invited my parents to a wedding received a gift for their son or daughter when they were getting married, was saying, it's my turn now to do the same thing for your son or daughter because they are getting married. So to put it in small terms, Lena and I cleaned house. Man, it was great. <laughs> we kept wondering, like, what do we do in return? How do we respond to this? And my parents said, this has already been done because we've been doing this and now they'll do it too. That's very foreign to us. Yes. I'm just like, can we get out of your mom's list? Yeah. <laughs> is that available? Yeah, well, it, it is. This is what's crazy about hospitality, especially in this Near Eastern culture that Jesus was speaking about so much, is to get on the list, all you had to do was begin the inviting. And so a lot of times in reciprocity, you have to ask yourself, do I want to invite that person over? And by the way, for what? Like if I invite them over for tea, I'm sending a signal. Like this is the status of our relationship, tea. 
If I invite them over for dinner, they're going to have to respond by inviting me over for dinner. And now we're in an endless loop of getting to know each other over food. And we better be serious before we take it to that level. Like we don't, you know. And so, yeah, you can do it. And that, again, is why Jesus says, when you invite people, don't do it for status. What was he talking about? He's saying that some people, in fact, most people, wouldn't invite the poor or the crippled because there was no status in getting a repeat invite from them. What they would do is go out of their way to invite the best person they could think of, the person in the highest status, so that that person was now obligated to invite them. They were bettering their circumstance. They were trying to get in the good graces of a patron who was wealthy or well-to-do or just who had good status by inviting them and saying, please, please, please come to my house. And when they finally relented and came, the obligation now was for that well-to-do person to return the invitation. And you could say, look at me, look whose house I'm going to. And Jesus was saying, go beyond that. Don't do it for that purpose. But I at least want you to understand what that was because we don't even get reciprocity at first. So I think, by the way, to conclude on Morgan's point is there were reasons for it that were beyond just reciprocity. It was the way civilization survived. You could never leave your town otherwise. And you could never find out what was going on. But as we're going to see tonight, this is also the way the gospel started to spread. And even as we no longer have the need for news and shelter in this exchange, the need to still open our homes and live into who Christ calls us to be in hospitality hasn't gone away. Last week, here's what we looked at. I'm just going to throw them up real fast. I'm not going to even go into them. If you're curious, what we talked about last week is we looked at hospitality as a sacred duty and how all Near Eastern cultures looked at it and its connection to the gods. We looked at hospitality being paramount. Also, that it was a place where we put the stranger even above our own family. And we showed examples of how, you know, the stranger was put in such a high regard that even when the family was put second, third, or even endangered, you still put the guest, the stranger, first. And again, it's not a guest like, hey, welcome. We know you very, very well. Sometimes there's somebody you had no idea who they were. We also point out that hospitality could be initiated entirely by the stranger. That was expected. It was totally expected that somebody you didn't know would just knock on the door and invite themselves over and you would gladly receive them without all the hemming and hawing that we do trying to figure out if there's a way that we could somehow do that, even among friends. And we talked about that last week. And finally, what we're going to expand on even further tonight is hospitality indicated acceptance of the gospel. And I've been saying that for a number of weeks, and I started to show it last week, and I want to kind of press into it a little bit more. Here are a couple of things we looked at last week. Revelation 3.20, that we often think of as a way where Jesus comes and we invite him in. Notice the way the invitation is even put. It's not us making the invitation. Jesus comes and knocks. He's bringing himself to our door, and the language here is, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person. So we looked at that last week and showed that even the language of inviting Jesus into our lives is built around a table where we share food together. The words are stated in hospitality again. And now you understand how the stranger initiates. In this case, Jesus initiates, whether he's a stranger to us or not. He's not waiting for our invitation. He begins to knock. But if we let him in, that hospitality indicates our acceptance of who he is. I can't count the number of stories in the scriptures that 
revolve around food. I can't count the number of parables or the situations that Jesus is in where food is very prominent. But you could go back to the Old Testament and just begin counting. I think somebody should just put together a whole list of all the places that food and food fellowship and hospitality are central to what's going on. And we kind of miss it sometimes because we're not really understanding how this is so important to them. Remember, even when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus, he was walking with the two who didn't recognize him. When did they finally recognize him? When they invited him in because it was getting late in the day and he sat down with them and he broke bread. And it was at that moment that they recognized who this person was that they'd been walking with all the way and he disappeared. We ended last week with this verse from Matthew. It's from Matthew chapter 10. And again, another way of showing how hospitality indicates acceptance of the gospel. It says, anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Focus with me on these words for just a second. First, as I said last week, the phrase, even a cup of water, is kind of a, a way of saying in the colloquial language, like even the littlest form of hospitality, like just even a cup of water and I would be satisfied that you had given me something to drink. So Jesus is pointing out here that anyone who gives even just the smallest token of hospitality is indicating that they're receiving you. And if they receive you, then they receive me. And if they receive me, then they've received the one who sent me. So that smallest, smallest token indicates that they've accepted you. And accepted whom is very important. These little ones who is my disciple. Hang on to that, little ones, because remember, Matthew uses little ones to describe the disciples frequently. I'm going to read Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. This is kind of central to the understanding of hospitality. It's this passage. Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, Jesus begins to tell how it's going to be. Now, he's been telling numerous parables about the end, but this is not a parable. He does make some analogies or uses a couple of metaphors similes, but it's not a parable. He doesn't say that there's a story about a certain man. He just says, in the end, it's going to be like this, and he begins to talk. What I want us to do is first listen to it, and then we want to wrestle with what is Jesus saying here. I want to hear from you. So let me read this part to you. What does Jesus mean about hospitality and those who give it and those who don't? When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. 
I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. That's Jesus' wording about what's going to be like at the end. Now I'm going to stop for a moment and hear from you. When we look at these, and I've kind of summarized them here in this part on this slide, of what he's kind of driving towards, what is Jesus saying? What does this mean to you? Could it be that he's saying if you don't do these things, don't exercise hospitality, that your punishment is going to be severe? In this passage, you're going to go to hell with the devil and his angels. But if you do do those things, then you're going to go to eternal reward and of course, we catch from this telling of the end days that we're not going to know that we did those things because we're going to be asking, Jesus, when did we ever do those things or not do those things to you? And he's going to say, whatever you did to any of the least of these, you did for me. And whatever you did not do, you did not do for me. What do you think? What does it mean? Uh, in our series, when we define least of these, we define that as um, <clears throat> primarily those who are in the faith. And that's kind of that idea of accepting, if you're accepting someone who brings the good news of Christ, you're accepting Christ and the Father, and you know that we're accepting. So um, it seems to indicate that we need to take care of, at minimum, like the first, maybe the primary, is taking care of brothers and sisters in Christ who need shelter and food and Okay, so if we look at the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you're saying if we look at those as disciples, okay, so if we look at them as disciples, then the meaning becomes what? Meaning that we would need to take care of fellow brothers and sisters. If we're a disciple, we would be needing to take care of fellow brothers and sisters because we're actually hospitality ultimately across the Okay, Monique? I don't know. I kind of have a problem with that definition, but like I sort of understand like if we're talking about doing it as if it was for doing it for Christ, well, yeah, if we're one body, we're Christians, we're part of like the body of Christ, we're one, it's like united with like we're supposed to be under God, like one with God, you know, trying to be 
like chase after that. So yeah, it's like if I do it for a fellow Christian, yeah, we're one body. It's like we're taking care of our own body. But to say that it's primarily for believers only or to say the least of these are only disciples, like that doesn't cut it for me. Because then there wouldn't be all these stresses in, in scripture about like loving your enemies and praying for your enemies and helping this person and that person. And if someone walks with you and asks for your cloak or whatever and it's like a soldier and all these things that have nothing to do with people that love God. And I think showing hospitality to people that don't know God and doing these things for people that don't know God, they will quickly see God's love through that. Like those are little seeds that get sown. So there's no way, at least in my opinion, that we're saying primarily let's take care of our own. Like that just doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Yes, Ben? Uh, in addition to the basics of uh, kind of taking care of each other as a community, it looks to me a little bit like this might be a mechanism for extending salvation to others that God intends to use, uh, where the good news brought to them by the believer or by the least of these would be that salvation, kind of the reciprocity for the um, kindness showed to them. Okay, explain that. So what's the mechanism? Explain how that works. The mechanism being, I mean, if you go with other things that have already been done in the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus sends out his disciples in pairs, which never made sense to me before. So he sends them out into towns, and they're not just going door to door knocking on it like a Jehovah's Witness saying, hi, we want to tell you something. They're going around in the normal, apparently, the normal cultural mode of you go around and you bring news. But the news they're bringing is the good news with capital letters. Good, Okay. Yes, Krista. I was just going to echo the same thing, I think. Just as a way of kind of perpetuating the good news is you want to take care of your brothers and sisters so that you can continue that. And I, I, I don't think that, although I don't know if it says this, but I, it doesn't seem consistent to say that Jesus would say that he doesn't care about the others because throughout the Bible he's, he's making it evident that the gospel is for the nations. It's for all people. So... But I just wonder if maybe this is like a priority, like definitely don't forget the brothers and sisters. Okay. So wait, Jeremy? Yeah, I don't I think we're adding like, I don't know, good news seems to me like we're we're adding something in there which at least in my hearing of it wasn't really what was going on. What they're talking about here was there were people who were in these situations, you know, and we I mean we could, you know, they were thirsty, or they were a stranger, or they didn't have clothes, or what? They were in a condition, right, where they lacked something. Now, we could spiritualize that and say, okay, they lacked the good news. That's, I don't think that's wrong to do. And we could also say, they needed things. <laughs> and so, in some sense, like when I look at just that basic level of people needing things and receiving people who need things, not, not just like some idea, right, of good news, but also just needing things, that in some sense, salvation comes to these people through the receiving of other people. Like the fact that somebody received someone who was hungry or received someone who was thirsty. That, that, that is what got them separated at the end of the story. It wasn't, or at least in the story, it doesn't say, you know, you received this person, they told you something about Jesus, and you accept it. Like that, that part's not in there. What, what is in there is you did these things. And that separated you out from the people who didn't do these things. My feeling is if you're willing to take in Christians, if you're, if you're willing to receive Christians, you're probably willing to receive others too, right? So if you're not willing to receive Christians, it's not really an issue because you're probably not willing to receive others either. Um, 
This story is about people who did something and they were separated for doing that thing. Let's go with that for a second. Because this is how a lot of people come to this passage. If we go off of Jeremy's comment right there, what we're saying is people who do a certain thing receive eternal reward. And people who don't do a certain thing receive eternal punishment. That's what it says. If we just take it on the two categories that Jeremy created, people who do a certain thing and people who don't. And that is why this passage has been troubling to so many people who really believe that our life in Christ has nothing to do initially with what we do or don't do. So respond to that. I actually thought about that earlier when we were reading it, but salvation is so complicated. And like we've talked about this before where it's like, it is like the only way to be saved is, is grace. Like it, it's Christ's grace. But then we're expected that if you really are saved and follow Christ, that your life should reflect certain behavior or certain things and like a transformation. And, and it's, I mean, obviously grace is what saves you, but there's so many passages besides this one that talk about like cutting you off from the vine if you don't do this or like whatever, if your life doesn't reflect a certain amount of like growth and life and fruitfulness. So it doesn't surprise me that God feels so, that Christ feels so strongly about this because if we're to follow him and believe in Jesus, we would be clothing people and feeding people who are hungry and looking out for the orphans and like doing these kinds of things. Like it just makes sense to me. And above all, what separates Christ to me from any other belief of like do-gooding or whatever is that it's also extended to non-believers and enemies. And like it's taken to that next level of like love and loving everyone. So it's not that like, okay, you're hospitable, now that's our ticket to heaven. But obviously if you're saved and you're not doing these things, there's something wrong. And so I think we're supposed to feel uncomfortable about it. Anyone else? Joe. I really agree with that. I was trying to kind of formulate a similar response, but I do think that it's not in the act. It's not, okay, you did these things, so you're cool. But you forgot to do these things, so sorry. Um, but I think, yeah, if you know Christ, then these things will be a manifestation. Looking after others, being compassionate towards people who don't have something, like you can provide that thing, then you will. Look, I first encountered this verse in a real meaningful way when I was 18 years old. And Tony Campolo, who went on to great fame, was, was somewhat well-known at the time. And I remember him preaching a sermon where he basically said, if you don't feed people, you're going to hell. And I was like, what? Oh, no. <laughs> like, I didn't know that. Like, that wasn't part of my faith. And if you don't visit people in prison and you don't clothe people, then basically you're going to hell. And so you need to sponsor a child. That was the end of the message. <laughs> At the time, he worked for Compassion International. He was one of their spokespeople. He used this verse, and I was so riveted by this, I couldn't understand it. Because I had been taught a lot of things, but I had not been taught that if I didn't feed poor people or people who were hungry, clothed, thirsty, you know, clothed people who were naked, that I would somehow uh, forfeit my salvation. I didn't get that. And so I sponsored a child right away. I don't know that we'll resolve the tension. I want to describe it, though. I think it is significant that he is talking about the least of these brothers and sisters. 
The reason that's significant goes all the way back to this verse here where we're looking at these words. Matthew uses least of these or little ones, which is the same word translated, exclusively in the book of Matthew to refer to the disciples. Okay, if we just take that for a moment and say the same guy who's writing uses this word to refer to disciples, then why is this passage focused so much on the disciples or those who are the believers? And remember, disciples included men and women. It's not referring to the 12 apostles here. It's referring to those who are the disciples. And I think Ben is on to something because that is exactly what was going on with Jesus was he was sending people out. He sent the 12 out. He sent the 70 out. And he would tell them, don't take anything with you. Rely upon the hospitality of the towns and villages you visit. Now you might be thinking, how far could they really go? They're going, what, 10 miles, 15 miles? That's a foreign journey to many of those people. They're going to places where they're not within walking distance to come back to their own town that night. They're going to have to stay. In fact, last week we looked at the verse where he says, go and stay with the people. And if they welcome you, then stay with them and accept whatever that they'll give you. But if they don't accept you, then shake the dust off your feet as a symbol when you leave the town. Why would you do that? Because that shaking the dust off your feet is a symbol that you have not accepted us. And again, those who don't accept you don't accept me. So there is something about the acceptance. Okay? So here's how this has played out over the centuries. In the recent years, and I mean the recent 200 years, the interpretation of this passage has been, this applies to everyone. Because this is consistent with who we see Jesus to be elsewhere. It's consistent with who we see God all over the place. Throughout scripture, we see God as somebody who is concerned with the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. And I don't think there's anything to diminish that. But what's interesting is the interpretation for the first 16 or 1700 years of the church's history, going all the way back to the ancient fathers, was that Jesus was saying that when they do these things, they are accepting you. They are doing these things to my disciples, my representatives. So by doing this, it must be because they're accepting the one who sent you. I'm being very careful with those words because I don't know that it necessarily means they've accepted the gospel message, got down on their hands and knees and said a prayer. Jesus never used that language even when he said, if they accept you, they've accepted me. But Jesus seems in several places, including in Matthew and Luke and the passages we've looked at already, to say, if they extend hospitality to you, then they've accepted me. And then they've accepted the one who sent me. So, we have the old interpretation that was dominant for a long, long time. And we have the newer interpretation that broadens it to fit better with our idea of what God is concerned about. I don't know that either of them is not true. But I want you to understand that that tension exists because every time I come back to this passage, you could say that if you're going to study what Matthew is writing in context, he has a meaning for those words. But if you look at how my heart reads those words, it's much more expansive. It's much broader than just saying that, oh, 
So you accepted the messenger, so you accepted the message, and therefore that's what makes you a sheep or a goat. Respond. What's interesting to me about that, though, is the people receiving would not be Christians, I would assume, because like there is no Christianity yet, really. The message is starting to go out. So this is not even applying necessarily to Christians. It's saying these non-Christians that accepted you into their home are somehow blessed for doing this or whatever. So it, it's, it's not even like we can't say, oh, it means take care of our own, like as Christians, take our brothers and sisters first. That wouldn't even make sense because in this case, the people accepting them into their homes don't know God. Like, they're strangers. And it's kind of a bigger deal as well because the disciples were probably mocked and scoffed and feared for their life, especially after Christ was crucified. So for someone to take them in is like a big deal. So maybe Christ is kind of speaking to that in the future. Like, wow, there's going to be a time these people are still going to take you and they're blessed and like, you know. I think you're exactly right, by the way. I don't think whichever interpretation you adopt, the one that says that it's about welcoming the disciples and receiving them, or it's the ones about saying we just should take care of anyone we decide is the least of these, whoever that may be, we just make up our own definition. Whichever one you take, neither of those means we only take care of our own. I think that interpretation nobody takes on. But let me be clear, the people who take the long-held traditional view, what some commentators call the majority view, would say that this means that if you do take the risk of accepting the disciple and receiving them, you are evidencing your acceptance not only of the messenger, but of the message. All right? That that is the reason that you're housing them or going to visit them when they're in prison. And if you start to think about the book of Acts, and you start to think about Paul's ministry, and the early church, and the persecution, and you start to see who fit these definitions during that time, it makes more sense. Yes? I was just going to ask who was the king talking to? Because he's obviously talking to a group of people. Sheep are usually referred to as Christians later on by Paul. And goats are the non-Christians. And that's how, you know, in my head, that's how I've defined it. And so when I look at that verse and I hear the king saying, well, the sheep are on my right and the goats are on my left, I'm thinking, oh, he's talking about Christians and non-Christians. That's where my mind goes. But the way you just find it, it's he's talking to people, not necessarily defined as Christians. That's right. The, the sheep and goats language is confusing to us because we like sheep. We think, oh, that's us. Sheep and goats are a common way that people refer to two things that you had to separate. He could have said wheat and chaff. He could have said anything that people knew listening to him are going to say, hey, we separate those two things. So historically, the context behind sheep and goats, sheep and goats grazed together. But at the end of the night, one had to go inside, one had to go outside, right? Sheep were more valuable generally, but, but you know, or sheep were thought of more favorably, but you can't take from that just because we like sheep and lambs and all those words that we put in worship songs. You can't just automatically take those to mean sheep are Christians. You're right. Sheep and goats are representing different types of people, and their separation is determined by their action. Let me be clear. The nations does refer to all people. The only time we distinguish about the disciples is who they're doing it to. So all people did or didn't do something to the least of these. 
all people, the nations, are the starting block. And then you separate all people, the nations, into sheep or goats, depending on how they treated the least of these. And the big question is, what are, who are the least of these? That's the big question. So the people who take the least of these as the disciples say the least of these, therefore, are all nations are divided into sheep or goats depending on whether they accepted and welcomed the disciples in their message. The people who take a more, who take a broader view of the least of these would say, no, he's just talking about anybody who's downtrodden, anybody who's less in society. And the problem with that, as much as I agree that Jesus would fully agree with that statement, is it just kind of abuses Matthew's writing. That's not the way he means that word. We would be twisting it to mean something a little different. Having said that, I fully endorse that we should be doing that. I'm not trying to say that we, hey, we're off the hook. Guess what? Unless a disciple comes to your house, you're totally off the hook. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying, here's the thing I am trying to say. A lot of people look at this and say, are you saying my salvation depends on what I do? Because I keep hearing it's not about what I do. And the answer is, I don't think this modifies what salvation is based on. How you're judged by whether or not you receive the message. Because he makes that point over and over. If they receive you, they receive me. And if they receive me, they receive the one who sent me. All right, let me ask a more fundamental question. In this story that he's telling, everyone's surprised. Like, we didn't know that was you. And the other people who didn't do the right thing go, oh, when did we not do that? So nobody knows. But now that we have this story, we all know. <laughs> the surprise is ruined. We've read the end of the book. We know the answer. Whenever we do any of these things, who are we doing them for? Right, it's like in Sunday school, you know the right answer to every question, Jesus, right? So whenever we do any of the things that he's saying to do, like feed and give water to and, you know, welcome a stranger and clothe someone and heal the sick or be with them or visit them in prison, who are we doing that to? Jesus. Here's the twist. Last week when we were talking about all these different places in scripture where we see hospitality, Jason asked, can you think of an example in scripture where there was just hospitality and it was blessed when it wasn't something divine or something that related to the prophets or something that related to Jesus? And I said, that's very hard to do because Jesus is saying, any time you extend these things, you're doing it to me. So in a way, Jesus is always the person we're doing it to, doing it for. Jesus is always the one who's the recipient of these things because he's putting himself in that place. All right, so let me ask you the question, is it okay for us to do these things now that we have spoiled the surprise? Like now when someone knocks on the door and says, will you invite me in? Now you have a little bit of an unfair advantage. Your normal reaction might be go, heck no, I don't even know you. And then as you're kind of half closing the door, you go, oh, it might be Jesus, right? So you kind of open the door and go, come on in, friend, come on in. So are we any less off now that we know what Jesus is teaching in this story? In other words, should our motivations matter in hospitality? Yeah. I think we have bigger problems in our society. Yeah, we should be doing these things. And our society as a whole is individualistic, selfish, greedy, uh, self-absorbed. Really just, I mean, it, it literally consumes and consumes and consumes and doesn't really think 
<laughs> we're in big trouble. I mean, like, and because we know the story, we're in even deeper trouble. I mean, we, we have a big problem. Um, yeah, we should be doing all. I mean, I don't know if it's the, if the story is we do all those things, we check them off. You know, I mean, it could be that you know there were people who worked with those who were in prison, and that there were people who worked with those who need to close. I mean, it, it could it could there could be some new ones there. I think, but we're, right, we got deeper problems as a society and as Christians. Okay. Morgan? I think what's difficult is I look at this story and I look at maybe a handful of times where I can say, okay, maybe I did something like this. There aren't many, you know, and that's the hard part of this. It's like, yeah, this just doesn't happen in my life very often, you know, and that's rather convicting, as Jeremy's kind of pointing out. It's just, <laughs> so we're supposed to be seeking this out. You know, I mean, people don't come knock at your door very often. It's just not very often. But. Okay. Monique? Um, well, A, I don't think we have to go that far. Because, to be honest, this was me last night. Like, I called someone. I was like, I need somewhere to stay. And I hadn't eaten dinner. And they're like, dropped everything. They're like, come stay here. Like, I'll take care of you for the night. And that definitely speaks to me. Because that, like, was a lifesaver for me. Um, and tonight, again, also. And I also think it's a hard thing, because every time I try to die to myself, the only reason, I'll be honest, because I'm naturally selfish, selfish, I'm a human, the only reason why I do something like that is because I love Christ. And I want the selfishness in me to die. Like, I long for that. So every time I have something, I could hide it and not share, but I decide to share, it changes my heart. If someone needs a place to crash when it's their turn whatever at my place, like, come, like, you can stay here. It could be a friend, it could be a friend of a friend, it could, I mean, God, Stephanie's not even a Christian, and there was a kid that we knew that got kicked out of his house that was, you know, a teenager or whatever, had nowhere to go. She's like, no, like, her heart broke for him. Like, let's find a place for him. Like, I know someone that lives in his neighborhood. Like, those are the things that when you do it, it really changes your heart. So it is, like, a hard thing. And if you love Christ and you're doing these things, like, it sort of does embody salvation, I guess is what I'm saying. And so it doesn't tarnish it because you know that Christ says you should do it because it might be me. I don't think anyone opens the door to their house and says, this stranger might be an angel or might be Jesus, like let them in. That's not why you do it. Like normally if you're gonna do it, it's because you're like, no, like I love Christ, I take this seriously. I'm gonna extend hospitality. And it changes you every time that you do it. Okay. So my comment, again, kind of like what Monique was saying, is I think you asked us, is it okay that we do these things in order to just in case this is Christ, to serve Christ. I think there's no other reason for us to do these things than doing them for Christ. Like, what other reason we have as Christ followers or as people to say, we're going to do these things for these people. It's because we want to be obedient and want to serve Christ. Okay. Yes. I have a question. I think I've heard from time to time that um, when, like, the scriptures were written and, yeah, that inviting someone into your home had a, had a significance that is a little bit bigger than today. Does that make sense? Like, can you maybe tell me like what that is and describe that? Because I wonder if that um, says something about how they saw people that we could like adopt to. Well, there is a complete reversal of the roles that happened as well. Like, first of all, when a stranger came, they could initiate, right? You were to welcome them in, but that welcome was not as somebody who needed help. 
Like you were receiving them as if this was the greatest gift you were receiving. And in so receiving the stranger, the guest, they actually would become the host. I mean, you gave them so much. It wasn't like they were just somebody that you had to put up with. You gave them a central place within the house. People would even vacate their own rooms or put them up in the best place. And they would actually, in turn, start to play host with whatever stories they brought, whatever information they brought. I mean, that was a complete reversal. And as a result of that relationship that was built, like that almost becomes what people have described even until now when you have that kind of relationship with people in other countries or other places, you're now like family. It's a very close connection. And that reciprocity means that when you are going to travel to their town, you don't have to go as a stranger anymore. You know exactly where you're going. In fact, it would be an insult to go to that person's town and not stay with them. Not because you just, it wasn't just returning the favor or because you had a right to do it. It meant that like they have an honor that they want to bestow back upon you because you did it with them. So like people would actually fight over who would get the stranger if it was somebody who had multiple options of where they stayed because they had welcomed other people into their homes. So there was a very close connection. It was like building a bond, right? But the interesting thing was it started with complete strangers. It started with people who were doing that, and that was part of the way that it worked. We don't have that today. But I think you said in the first week when I said, what's the opposite of hospitality? You said privacy. And I think that that's what kills hospitality in our society, is that we want so much privacy. We want so much control over our space that for me to just knock on the door at your house, even though you know me, and if I just came and said, hey, I just need to crash here. Uh, I mean, you'd be struggling not to offend me, but at the same time, you'd be freaked out. And we know each other. Now imagine people who didn't know each other, had no expectation, no warning that somebody was going to come and stay with them and how that would work out. But in the end, that also created a bond that was going to last and uh, whole relationships between cities and towns and peace was made in that way. Yes. It's, it's very thoughtful or thought-provoking. Um, you, you, you mentioned like you know privacy kind of being the opposite of that, and, and I also think it's it's privacy and it's like this idea that these things are mine. The the place that I have is mine, or like that I hear it in political discourse. This money I have is mine, right? I shouldn't give it to someone else, or I shouldn't have to pay more taxes for someone else, right? Like. You know, there's, there's like something in our society that has just become so warped, like this idea of, of privacy and like my things and my possessions <coughs> and this is my home, you know, and, and, and it's when somebody else extends like uncommon hospitality towards you that you're like, oh, wait a minute, like why did you do that? You know, you spent money on me, or you invested in me for no reason. You know, but then, you know, how do we change like that culture? Because that's the culture that we live in. I mean, this is such an important lesson. Well, it's central to the Christian life, and that's why I say it's recovering the lost practice, because we don't know how to do it, and we will get there. I hope I'll have some very practical tips. Look, the last thing I'm going to say is, do you see that throughout the story he refers to himself as the king? That's why it's so shocking that people are surprised. What? That was you? Because remember reciprocity? If you could have reciprocity with a king, <laughs> you would take it every time you could. You would have invited that king. You would have visited the king. You would have done anything for the king because the king would have been obligated to do it for you. And here the surprise is you were doing it for me. You just didn't know. 
So these people are shocked. Both the righteous and the unrighteous are shocked. That we were doing that for a king? Yes. The reason I think this newer interpretation has some merit, by the way, of understanding this is an obligation we all have. Think of the story of Lazarus at the gate, the beggar, and the rich man whose only crime appears to be that he drove by Lazarus every day and never gave him anything to eat, even though Lazarus was just begging for the crumbs off his table. In that story, Jesus says that in the next life, their situation is reversed. Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham in heaven, and the rich man is the one who is suffering. Why? Just because he ignored the person sitting at his gate. He ignored to just offer him that kind of hospitality. And the other thing that should stick in our mind is the passage from Luke that we looked at a couple weeks ago where Jesus says, don't give hospitality because of reciprocity. Give hospitality to the poor, the lame, the crippled, those who cannot repay you. Where do you get your reward? In heaven. So I think if you take the balance of Jesus' teachings, what he's saying is, whenever you do it, you're really doing it for me. This isn't a way to earn your salvation. Because what you're really showing is who you did it for. Maybe it was the disciples, maybe it was all people, but it really means you did it for me. And think about the people you don't do it for, what it's going to mean when you ignore them. Bad stuff, says Luke. And also think about this concept of not doing it for reciprocity's sake. Do it for the people who can't pay you back. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to start to talk more practically about how to do that. I think the point's been made. Now we've got to figure out how. How do we do that? I'm going to leave it there. And tonight, as we go into worship, I've actually asked the group to play a song that takes Matthew 25 and sets it to music. So it's a little bit of a new song for us, but I think it's a good way to reflect on this passage musically in addition to what we've been doing with our mind about it. Let's pray. God, this is a tension and a mystery that I don't think we're going to resolve. I come back to this text over and over each time trying to get it, just understand it, make it fit, make it comfortable, and it's never comfortable. And Lord, I don't think you intended it to be comfortable. I think you intended to bother us with this passage every single time. Just like these people didn't know who they were doing it to and who they weren't. You want us never to be so comfortable that we've got it figured out or we've got you figured out. So Lord, let us live in that tension and let us rejoice in the tension because wisdom is being produced every time we have to rack our brains to understand what is it that you're asking us to do. And maybe what you're asking us to do is to continue to wonder. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.